On this very important episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, we discuss the recent news about the coronavirus, or COVID-19, with recommendations on how to address employee and patient issues, policy changes, infection control requirements, and how to deal with possible surveys. We also discuss the CMS directives related to survey activity by the states and the accrediting organizations. Please visit us at ASC Podcast with John Gailey to keep up to date. Please note that all podcasts are dated and are current as of the podcast date. This is a constantly changing situation, and you must maintain ongoing vigilance for the most up-to-date information. Please visit ASCPodcast.com regularly. This episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey is sponsored by Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, the nation's leading ASC regulatory compliance firm. Are you preparing for a Medicare, state, or accreditation survey, or have recently experienced a difficult survey? Or do you want to make sure you are always survey ready? AHS is your answer. Our dedicated team of experts is ready to assist you. AHS can make you ready for your next survey, complete your plan of correction, and work with you to always be ready for a survey. We also provide retainer-based services to oversee your regulatory compliance, including preparing policies, forms, education programs, overseeing your quality improvement, risk management, infection control, and emergency preparedness programs. For more information, call John Gailey today at 585-594-1167 or visit our website at age-strategies.com. Welcome to episode 90 of the ASC podcast with John Gailey for March 10th, 2020, recording from our studio in Spencerport, New York. This is Sue Cronkite, Chief Researcher for the ASC podcast and Senior Nurse Consultant for Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies. And I'm here with Alex Borneman, AHS Director of Operations, Jenna Alvarez, Senior Nurse Consultant with AHS, and John Gailey, recognized as one of the nation's leading experts in the ambulatory surgery industry. So we've been dealing a lot over the past couple of weeks with the COVID-19 issues and some news from CMS. Yeah, and and of course, those of you that follow us closely note that we haven't had an episode in almost two weeks, and and that's largely because uh, we have been dealing literally 24-7 with these issues and trying to keep on top of it. So I thought it would be good to bring uh, two people together. First of all, Jen Alvarez, she's our senior nurse consultant. She's been the one that's been dealing most directly with COVID-19 and uh, doing a lot of the research. Of course, Sue has been very much involved in it also. And Alex is here just because he happened to be in the studio at the same time that uh, um, that we were recording. And uh, he is the director of operations. So he's the, he's the one that's making sure our resources are being put in the right place. And he does a lot with our emergency preparedness and drills and that kind of thing. Right. So yep. uh, needless to say, this is definitely what we would call an emergency uh, situation and certainly uh, internal and external uh, in nature. Just a couple little uh, notes for those of you that were going to the ORN conference in uh, California in about two or three weeks. That has been canceled. You probably know that by now. ASC Association has reaffirmed as of this morning, and we're recording on Tuesday, March 10th, uh, ASCA has reaffirmed that they are 
are going on with ASCA 2020 at this point in Orlando, Florida. I was just informed a few minutes before uh, we went live here that one of my conferences with a management company is moving from an in-person conference to a webinar. So we're going to be uh, setting up our studio here for a, uh, a live feed with that. And we're also going to be announcing to our clients very shortly that we're curtailing uh, non-essential travel for our staff just you know, for the safety of our staff, for the safety of our centers, uh, people like myself travel so exclusively. Um, you know, I'm concerned that I might have been exposed in some of my travels, so I, I don't want to uh, be a um, super spreader. Yeah, I don't want to be <laughs> a super spreader if, uh, if that's happening. And, uh, and and of course, with technology now, we're finding that uh, it's just as efficient in many cases to to do live conferences. One thing I, I have found, I, I know all of us in the uh, the room here have uh, have experienced how, how nice it is to actually be able to see the other person. So using uh, video conferencing is it's not quite as good as being in person mm-hmm. but it's certainly a pretty close second here as i said uh for all of our clients out there, we are going to be trying to cut back on our actual travel, uh, but you will still hear a lot from us because there's a lot going on, and, and definitely uh, Jenna has been working on you know, some policy changes. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in the second segment. Just a couple of things have been happening here. Um, I've been doing some surveys and uh, you know, visiting with new clients, and one of the things we've kind of recognized is that you know, kind of the difference between our company and perhaps some of the other consultants out there, especially that hands-on side. Uh, you know, where we're we're kind of in the weeds all the time. I recently had an experience where I was uh, looking at an organization who had uh, another consultant that doesn't have the breadth of knowledge that we have and kind of relies on the organization to just take their paperwork and then run with it. And, and unfortunately, they got themselves into trouble because they weren't able to interpret that information that came from the consultant. So just a, a fair warning to be very careful, you know, with hiring consultants out there. I know this sounds kind of self-serving, but in, in today's environment with everything going on, you need to make sure that you're hiring consultants that are really on top of it, you know, uh, on the leading edge of all the information that's out there and are keeping up with uh, the changing environment. And uh, Sue, let's just give a very quick puppy update, just to kind of lighten <laughs> the mood a little bit, given how serious everything is. Of course. We always have to talk about the puppy. So actually, this Saturday, we get to pick her. Yes. We're... I think third on the list, and and we'll be getting pictures of each puppy, and we'll get to pick, and then a couple weeks after that, we'll be bringing her home. But we've seen pictures, and she's—they're just all looking so cute. Yeah, Miss Pink seems to be the uh, the one that we're most interested in right now. I guess I guess she's got a cute little pink ribbon. I know. (laughs) (laughs) So all any of them, I'm sure. So we we will post. uh, Actually, we have a video this time. Maybe we'll try to post the video up there. And is Uh, that the final name, or is that a work in progress? Yeah, I don't think Miss Pink. I actually have a whole list, though. Oh, it's I read it off every couple days, and I'm like, okay, so can we check anything off of this? I feel like it's our first child. You know, picking Jenna's name was a lot easier than picking this puppy's name. Well, and my name was picked out by my mother when she was in college. So <laughs> That's true. <there's, laughs> you didn't really have much I to say there. Lot, so. <laughs> Pretty well cemented in at that point. Uh, by the way, I, it is great to have all of you around the table here. Sue and I, you know, do all this recording so often uh, on Sunday evenings, and it's nice to have a, a number of people in the studio. So thank you for, for being here, and hopefully this will be a little bit more conversational. 
Let's just uh, talk a little bit about some of the news in the industry. For those of you who are not aware, on March 4th, 2020, CMS notified through the policy and memos of state and regions, uh, all of the uh, the regions as well as the accrediting organizations, that they are uh, suspending many of the survey activities going on uh, for providers, including ambulatory surgery centers. So this is uh, what they have stated. Effective immediately survey activity is limited to the following, and it's in priority order. The highest priority is all immediate jeopardy complaints. These are cases that represent a situation in which the entity's noncompliance has placed the health and safety of recipients in its care of uh, at risk for serious injury, serious harm, and serious impairment or death or harm and allegations of abuse and neglect. Second uh, level priority is complaints alleging infection control concerns, including facilities with potential COVID-19 or other respiratory illnesses. Third is statutorily required recertification surveys. This doesn't really affect us. These would be for nursing homes, home health hospice, and ICF and IID uh, facilities. Uh, Fourth in priority is uh, any revisits necessary to resolve current enforcement actions. So if you're under a current enforcement action, that's not going to stop that process. Uh, fifth, thank goodness, is initial certifications. We have three facilities under construction right now. Good news for all of our clients out there that are under construction is that uh, initial certifications will continue as, as planned. Next is survey of facilities and hospitals that have a history of infection control deficiencies at the immediate jeopardy level in the last three years. So if you have had an immediate jeopardy infection control issue identified within the last three years, it is likely you will be getting visited by your state health department. Department. And lastly, surveys of facilities, hospitals, dialysis centers, et cetera, that have a history of infection control deficiencies at lower levels than immediate jeopardy. So look at your recent surveys, and if you've had uh, surveys that have uh, shown infection control issues, there may be a possibility that they're going to visit. What this means is that at the present time, if you are not deemed status, in other words, you are relying on your state Department of Health to do your Medicare recertification survey, uh, those surveys have been discontinued for the near future. So now let's talk about the accrediting organizations. Uh, The accrediting organizations have been under the same rules from CMS, uh, effective immediately non-MDS certified or accredited organizations uh, are being asked to limit their survey activity to the same issues that we just spoke about here. In other words, deemed status organizations uh, also would not be having uh, regular recertification surveys. However, as of today at about 4.30 on Tuesday, uh, the accrediting organizations have not issued any official notification, but we are hearing that they will, the accrediting organizations will resume doing deemed status surveys. That is an evolving situation and will keep you informed. I guess uh, as all of us are around the room are, are speaking, I should point out that this is one podcast of what we assume will be many over the next couple weeks. We have way too much material. Jenna has been spending way too much time writing notes. Um, <laughs> and uh, unless she speaks very quickly, there's no way we're going to get through it all today. Uh, and also, Lori Rodericks, who is our uh, Director of Clinical Services for AHS and also a, a CAPE-certified uh, infection control expert, she is... She's one of our main resources, uh, you know, when it comes to the regulatory side of this. She and and Jenna have been working very closely together. We wanted the two of them to dialogue, but uh, Lori was not available today. She won't be available until Friday. So we'll probably have another episode on uh, later this week where we'll uh, bring them together. And we did want to, as you said, pay attention to the dates because things are changing so quickly. So what we say today 
may not be accurate in a couple of days, and and we'll be always updating. That's right. Yeah, this is uh, this episode is dated March tenth. Uh, we are recording at four thirty. I guess we have to say that uh, in the afternoon. And well, that uh, was I spent hours looking at mm-hmm. things yesterday, and then all of a sudden at like. 11 o'clock at night, I was like, oh, there's a new there's a new notification from the Department of Health today, right. the New York mm-hmm. State Department of Health. Yep. Constantly <laughs> oh. changing. And we will be, uh, we do have a lot of information because we are in New York. Uh, we have a lot of information that's specific to New York. We will put that at the end of the podcast or maybe even have a separate one depending on how, how this goes. So let's take a short break. We'll come back and we'll get into some more very specific details about COVID-19. So we are back, and we uh, we do want to talk about COVID nineteen pretty much for this entire episode here. One of the things, as a non clinical person, uh, though surrounded by clinical people, uh, obviously, is trying to understand why COVID nineteen has become such a huge issue. Uh, I mean, it sounds like a very basic question right now, but this it has a lot of the same symptoms of the flu, and you know the the mortality rate is uh, less than four uh, percent, but. I think many of our listeners, and keep in mind, many of our listeners are not necessarily nurses. I think, Jenna, I, I have to ask you the very basic question. What is COVID-19? Why is it becoming such an important issue? And uh, how serious is this to our community? So COVID-19 is a new or a novel coronavirus that's not previously been identified or seen. Um, so no one has immunity to it. COVID-19 is in the family of coronaviruses, which get their name from crown-like spikes on their surface. So that's that's why it's called what it is. And its symptoms include fever, cough, shortness of breath. So flu-like symptoms, which we're already seeing a ton of because Mm -hmm. it's flu season. And so it's kind of hard to distinguish at this point unless, you know, you have that travel history or a known exposure to know, does this person walking in have the flu? Do they have a cold or do they have coronavirus? And so it spreads fast because, you know, it took a while to identify. And then just getting to the United States, uh, from what I've heard recently, it sounds like Washington, which has one of the worst epidemics um, in the US, you know, they think that maybe it's been around for weeks. And, you know, we haven't had the ability to test until now. So now you're Mm -hmm. seeing exponentially increasing um, number of cases each day, week, because, you know, you're finally actually able to identify who has it. Mm-hmm. And, and doesn't that also affect uh, the, the mortality statistics, too? Because we, we know the number of deaths that have been related to the coronavirus. We just, and that's the numerator, yeah. but we, we're not absolutely sure about the denominator. So mm-hmm. I think I heard or read somewhere today that, like, in the United States right now, the mortality rate is somewhere like 10%, which we know is wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. But we don't have enough or we haven't until now had enough tests to be able to test everyone who needs to be tested. Um, I don't even know actually right now that all communities actually have the ability. I know that, mm-hmm. you know, they're working as fast as they can to get the resources to have those available to people. And they say but, some people that are that are sick with it feel like they just have a cold. Right. So yeah. they're not even thinking about being And some tested. people are asymptomatic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and we had an episode yesterday, one of our clients called us, and, and again, this brings up a very important point here. Uh, they had to send an employee home who had been traveling to one of the affected countries, came into work, had symptoms of the flu, came to work anyway, 
uh, and then of course immediately caused a panic. Uh, they the situation. Uh, I mean, we we res- we jumped on it right away. We recommended uh, a course of action, which involved contacting the local health department. The employee who was a CRNA uh, was uh, taken in and tested. They did a rapid flu test, and we just found out a few hours ago that that test was positive. So this person does have the flu. Now, Jenna, can you talk about that a little bit? So they don't have a test. They haven't been able to do a test on the coronavirus, but at this point, they know that she has the flu, or they're pretty sure with the rapid test she has the flu. Does that mean that she's going that she's not going to have the coronavirus? It doesn't mean that she doesn't have the coronavirus, but it means most likely her symptoms are caused by the flu. Okay. And that's one of the big things that you know we're trying to remind people is get your mm-hmm. flu shot. It's not going to prevent the coronavirus, but it'll prevent you from getting the flu, Mm -hmm. which has similar symptoms to the coronavirus. Also, you don't want to be fighting off the flu and then get exposed to coronavirus Mm -hmm. um, and And, have your immune system weakened. And we have to remember that the mortality, the sure number of deaths related to the flu are orders of magnitude Mm -hmm. much higher than the number of deaths that have been reported so far for the coronavirus. Yeah, so the mortality rate of the flu is less, but the exposure is... More. Right. And so, I mean, I know in our county, they released yesterday that there had been 11 deaths so far, and it's mostly affecting children. Mm-hmm. Whereas with the coronavirus, it's mostly affecting older adults. And I think there's actually even charts you can look at where, based on your age, you have a higher and higher mm-hmm. mortality mm-hmm. rate with the virus or mm-hmm. rate of getting seriously ill yeah. from the disease. And also, if you, if you have certain. The comorbidities. comorbidities. If you have any type of. What, heart disease, um, um, lung issues? Based on data that is available, people at higher risk from, for getting sick from COVID-19 are those who have heart disease, diabetes, or lung disease. Mm-hmm. And we are also aware that there have been no deaths uh, among uh, younger people. Uh, all of the deaths, I believe, have been in the population over 60, and all of them have been with individuals that have other in the United States, at In least. the United States, mm-hmm. correct. Okay. I, I believe that is yeah. true. Um, and then the other thing to know is that based on the current evidence, those at greatest risk for acquiring the disease are only those who are having long, unprotected, close contact with the patient. So if you just, I mean, we're talking about quarantine people who have just had a handshake with someone who was infected. Those people probably are at very low risk Risk, for actually contracting the disease. But Mm -hmm. if you're having a long conversation face-to-face with someone, you're probably the more likely to to get the disease from that person. And the other thing is to – if you have any question about whether someone who has come into your center or someone – or, you know, one of your employees might have the um, disease – Make sure that um, you're communicating with your local health department. They, at least all the ones that I've been looking into for various clients, have like a dedicated line to call about Mm -hmm. coronavirus, you know, uh, infections or potential Find out where there might be testing available, whether they recommend that you test. And they, they are the ones who know what you need to do. So I know we want to talk about both the patient side and the employee side. Let's finish up with the the employee side and just some recommendations. Uh, so number one recommendation is immediately send a memo out or call a staff meeting, remind everybody, don't come in if you're sick uh, at all, and and enforce that. Send them mm-hmm. you know home right from the door. What other recommendations can we give regarding staff? 
Um, I would uh, make sure that you are communicating with them if they've traveled recently. Um, mm-hmm. Especially, you know, you probably have a better control over your employees, you know, who's been on vacation. and But you might not know as much with your medical staff, right. especially mm-hmm. the ones who don't do a ton of cases. Or your anesthesia group, if, you know, depending mm-hmm. on how... Uh, often people come. So um, I would recommend communicating with everyone and letting them know just the way you're screening your patients saying, if you've traveled to one of these countries in the past 14 days, let us know. Right. Um, Are any upcoming plans to discuss it with people, you know, just to kind of get an idea if you need to be cautious about, is it someplace they need to go? They don't want to cancel it. Well, they need to know. know, They may have to be quarantined for a little while and, and you need to plan for that. You know, maybe missing out that employee for a couple well, of extra weeks. You might be going to a, a place that like uh, that that isn't currently on the list, but by the mm-hmm. time you come back, it might be on the list. Yeah. Well, I know yeah. a so couple. Um, a couple. That's been an issue with Italy. Is right. that people came back from Italy before it was put on the list, and they're like, "Oh no, I'm fine." And then you're like, "No, Italy's on the list. It just got right. added yesterday." Yeah. So to that end, what uh, what should you do? If you uh, have a, you're confronted with an employee that's coming back from a um, a country that is on the list. By the way, mention what that list is. So right now, the CDC has uh, level three travel notices out for China, Iran, Italy, and South Korea. Mm-hmm. A level two le- uh, travel notice out for Japan, and then I think there's an, a level one out for uh, Hong Kong. The level two and the level three countries are the ones that um, if they come back from those countries, you probably want to self-quarantine. Definitely level three. Level two uh, monitoring for symptoms and that's kind of up to you. I believe though you want to look at your state because I'm pretty sure at least in New York, they just put out a memo yesterday about enforcing mandatory quarantine and isolation and then also about precautionary quarantines um, for people returning from those countries. And there was different criteria for each. Um, so you're, you're going to have to look at those to see, you know, if someone fits into those categories. And I'm sure that that's going to change weekly at this point, too. Um, so make sure, you know, you look at what I would say is at least daily right now, mm-hmm. look at the CDC website to see if there's updates. Right. And we will link that. On a, on our podcast webpage at ASCPodcast.com. Look at your state Department of Health website. And I know we'll definitely at least have New York up there. Right. Um, and then look at your, your county Department of Health. I know a lot of my clients are in New York City and New York City NYC Health has been putting out a ton of stuff. I think they put out signs before New York State Department of Health actually put out signs for you to post stuff in your waiting room. So a big takeaway is that if uh, you have an employee that's coming back from a uh, level three country, definitely tell them to uh, quarantine themselves at home for a minimum of two weeks before they come in yeah. and monitor for symptoms. Um, the other thing is, um, I know I know some people are having people take their temperature. Right. For any country, because there still is that issue that you, if you had traveled, uh, like myself, going through Atlanta, you know, that's a hub that, you know, you want to continuously mm-hmm. monitor. Or if uh, you've been on a cruise. Oh, uh, cruise yeah. yeah, cruises. There's no there's no guidance right now for cruises, but yeah. 
you I would. have a giant <laughs> yeah. petri dish of people from yeah. you know every country imaginable. I think in that situation, unfortunately, I have to quarantine them given the the situation that yeah. we've seen. I mean, unless they were already quarantined when they got back. That's true. Anyways, which we're seeing, which is happening, happening. Yeah. Yeah. and the temperature check can protect you again against. You know, bringing the flu in as well. We have uh, one client that is both a surgery center and a clinic, and they have decided that the problem is on an ongoing basis, people show up at the surgery center that are actually going to the clinic. And of course, there's a much higher risk of somebody showing up at a clinic that has, uh, you know, either the flu or the coronavirus. Um, and uh, to minimize the risk, what we, what they've actually suggested, and we agree, is that they're catching people in the entryway before they go into either the surgery center or the clinic to make sure that they are going to the correct location. That'll minimize the risk to the surgery center patients. Uh, they are asking these basic questions. They're sending them home if they answer yes to both questions. I've, have you been in a foreign country that's on the list, and do you have any symptoms? Mm-hmm. Um, in that case, they you know, tell them right away to go home and, you know, contact the authorities. And if uh, they show symptoms only of the flu, um, you know, I mean, it just stands to reason that you, you want to keep them at home. Yep. Alex, uh, we're, we're talking about uh, disasters. This is uh, your area of expertise. So let's talk a little bit about how we, we deal with this from an emergency preparedness standpoint and also drill and drill documentation and, and just being prepared for it. Yeah. So, I mean, part of this, there's been some question about whether or not we need to drill for it. And I would say, yes, you should at least be drilling in terms of what to do when a patient comes in and answers both questions. You know, have you been out of the country to one of these countries? And do you have any flu-like symptoms? If they answer both of those questions in the affirmative, what do you do then? And really, you know, running through that with, I mean, I think the front desk staff are really the most important when it comes to this. Right. Well, and the other thing is, I, I mean, this is a good one to do as a, as a tabletop drill. Yeah. Um, because you want to kind of <clears throat> think of, okay, so we didn't catch them at reception for whatever reason. But so now we've exposed to the, you know, reception and the pre-op nurse. The pre-op nurse catches it. Okay, so how many people at this point have been exposed how are we going to isolate that patient? How are we going to take care of that patient bay that the patient was in? Mm-hmm. Are we going to close it down? Which you probably should close it down until you know <laughs> whether or not you have a case. Yeah. Um, how are you going to track who was in the vicinity of that patient to, you know, uh, who was potentially mm-hmm. exposed? Um, Where do you send the patient? Do you send them to the hospital? Do you send them to get testing? Well, and I know there's numbers. How do you, you can get call. them there? Yeah. And this mm-hmm. is a good a good time to say where would I put the patient? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because sometimes it's obvious and sometimes it's not. So I know all of my New York State clients have an exam room that you know is usually what they use as an isolation room if needed, but that's not the case in all states. And so you know you really got to have a place that you don't need to have an negative pressure room i don't know that any of my centers have a negative pressure isolation room. isolation room right and so we can't keep that patient for very long but as long as you have some place that right. you know a private room is, is right. best or at least six feet distance from other people so uh just closing the loop on this uh on on the disaster drill at the very least everybody should be doing an internal perhaps a tabletop disaster drill Running through what you would do if a patient shows up with all the symptoms of the coronavirus and has traveled in the in those uh, in those locations exactly and, and and probably covering you know what to do if they maybe 
either haven't traveled in those specific countries but have traveled to other countries Mm -hmm. or if they've gone to none of those countries but have flu-like symptoms. Mm -hmm. Or they have traveled and they don't have symptoms or if it's an elective thing, a lot of the centers, I think, are just saying, you know, wait two weeks before you come back. Right. Um, we had, So there's a number of things that we're going to be doing for our audience and for the general public. And one of the things we're going to do is we're going to post a drill kit, an internal uh, disaster drill kit. I don't even call this an internal or external drill. It's one of those things that really kind of falls, falls into both categories. Uh, we will post that on our ASC podcast uh, website. By the way, all of this stuff is free. This is a public service. I know that there are some other organizations that are charging. We feel it's very important that we get this information out. So please tell your friends about it. Uh, we'll post it on the uh, the webpage for this, and we'll we'll put a lot of links out there for this. So we'll put a drill kit up. This is all the resources we're going to put up yeah, there. Yeah, I, I – I, I had created one for um, one of my clients, and so now it's shared for all our clients. And right. it really kind of goes through the questions of, you know, okay, we got to this point. What are we? What PPE are we going to use? Right. You know, how are we going to supply the PPE? How are we going to limit the contact between our employees with that? How? What are we going to do with this patient now that we've identified yeah. them? Right now, the thing is that not all these patients need to go to the hospital. Right. You know, if they're not very sick. You really don't want to clog up your ERs right. with these patients. So if you know the Department of Health has a way to test these people from home, right. that's probably the better option. And you're going to infect less people. But how are you going to get that patient home? Right. You, you know, what do you do with th- – they're a responsible adult who's taken or brought them to the center. Because they're also probably infected. Right. And that brings up another point. Not only are we dealing with the patient – but we are. We need to be asking the question of the people that are coming into our waiting area. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, so New York State has some nice uh, signs on their <clears throat> website to post in your waiting room that both for the patients, but also for visitors, that says stop. Like if you've traveled to one of these countries and have these symptoms, let a staff member know. And uh, getting back to our employees, also again, if they are in a household with somebody that has traveled to one of these countries, or has COVID from a community transmission. Right. Alex, I wanted to go back to the disaster planning. We talk periodically about the hazard vulnerability analysis, the HVA. This would be a good time to kind of go back and revisit your HVA to make sure that you have put pandemics on there. I I would bet most of us kind of have never really taken it that seriously when we put together these HVAs, and yet look where we are today. I think CMS actually put out some guidance last year. Recommending that you add emerging infectious disease, which is yeah. when we had added it on. So yeah. it's a good idea to revise your HVA to uh, uh, to make sure that you've taken this into consideration and, of course, implement whatever steps you have. I do want to point out something, too. I've been looking at a bunch of HVAs recently from centers that I've surveyed. And consistently, I see that the HVA has been filled out, put into a folder, and forgotten. And in some cases, they've, like, documented some significant areas that require follow-up, but there was no follow-up done. So the yeah. HVA is it's a spreadsheet, but you need to do something with it. Can you talk a little bit about that, Alex? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's so important that you close the loop on what happens with the HVA. Really, it's a matter of making your risk assessment robust in that you have a place for each of those disasters or hazards to label whether or not you need follow-up and what kind of follow-up you plan on doing. Whether that be a physical mitigation, um, which could be something as simple as flashlights in a certain location or as 
large as a generator, which most right. of us are required to have anyways. Or it can be, you know, training staff, putting a policy in place, which is probably the most common. The most common. Yeah. Um, or doing drills. Right. And then drills. And, and then planning we- out your year as far as the four disaster drills or more. Really, I, I don't know how all of us aren't doing, you know, eight disaster drills at this point. Yeah. With the number of annual items required anyways. So... And we should point out, too, that uh, the disaster planning is a CMS requirement uh, for oversight by the governing body. So that means that uh, the plans that you have, the HVA, should be referenced in your governing body minutes, as well as your quality improvement, of course. But but there should be a specific reference in your governing body minutes to the activities uh, that you are uh, involved in your organization, demonstrating uh, governing body oversight of that. Absolutely. And I would I would follow up in those minutes on each of those items to see where you're at with that in terms of doing the disaster or creating the policies. Uh, interestingly, while we're recording this, uh, we just got a call from one of our clients who's asking how to handle uh, clinic situations. And some of our, our organizations have clinics affiliated or uh, owners of surgery centers might be affiliated with a clinic or their practice. So for those of you that are uh, amatory surgery centers as well as a clinic or have a practice, keep in mind that all of the stuff that we've been talking about uh, in this episode that's uh, is, is totally related should be done both for, you know, the surgery center, the clinic, the, the practice. So um, for those of you that are clinics that are clients of ours, we will get guidance out to you shortly about this also. Jenna, let's talk a little bit about uh, how do we screen for COVID-19 with our patients. Okay, so... This is changing daily. Right. I have the criteria for evaluation from the CDC as of March 4th, which really actually, because now the disease has spread so much, it made it a lot more generic, but it also opened up for a lot more people to be tested. Right. So a lot of it actually is more relying on clinical judgment, but with some people prioritized. So the prioritized patients are hospitalized patients who have signs and symptoms in order to make informed decisions about infection control so you're not having a spread of the disease throughout your hospital. Next would be symptomatic individuals, such as older adults and individuals with chronic medical conditions and or immunocompromised uh, patients, which put them at higher risk for a um, bad outcome. So you want to know the people who are most likely to get really sick from this disease, you want to be able to diagnose it faster. Right. And then also your healthcare personnel who are exposed to it. Right. And that's probably mostly, honestly, to get them back to work right. <laughs> if right. they're negative. Um, because that's going to be one of the next problems that we're going to face is a staffing shortage if we have to quarantine everyone right. who gets exposed. So um, now New New York State, also we'll talk about later, they put out some guidance, I believe yesterday, of their priority people to to test. So make sure that you are checking your state and your local health departments because based on the activity in your area, there might be specific guidelines for you. Or if there's any question, reach out to your local health department. So what should you guys do, I guess, is the big question. So right now, I would recommend screening for international travel in general. Um, And then if they do report international travel, you want to find out specifically if they came from any of those countries that are on the list of um, the CDC travel notices. 
if they are supposed to be quarantined, they cannot come to your center. Right. If they are symptomatic of the flu or COVID-19, you shouldn't be doing surgery on them anyways. That's absolutely right. So that's a pretty easy. This is not a COVID-19 issue <laughs> when it comes to being, you know, having any symptoms. And then to some degree, your center is going to have to make a decision. Um, this is a good time to have a conversation with your infection preventionist, your administration, your medical director, um, and your ownership of, you know, how aggressive do we want to be um, in making sure that we we don't have any cases of COVID-19 at our center. Now, right. the problem is it's going to spread in the United States. Yeah. We it's going to get worse before it gets better. We no know this, and I don't know how much longer your um, screening for travel to these other countries is really going to help you. Right. Because right now it's spreading through the community. But yeah. if we can track where the spread is happening and quarantine those people, you know, maybe we can get it under control. We'll be hopeful, but. <laughs> you know, so Jen, it dawns on me right now that I, I'm, I'm thinking on behalf of some of our naysayers out there that are, they're going to say, wait a minute, you're, this is being overblown. Uh, why are we doing all of this stuff? You know, it's not that big a presence. So we really do need to address that. Well, the thing is, is that I think what we need to be mindful is you don't need to panic. Right. It isn't Ebola. Right. Okay. Um, but we know it's a problem. We know that it is potentially deadly. Right. To our, especially to our older adult population. And we know that if we work hard, we can prevent the spread. Right. So I think we just need to be smart. Right. Uh, you know, I, I don't panic, but be cautious. Right. You don't need to go out and buy 10 gallons of you know, alcohol hand rub. Yeah. I mean, or, or like well, one of our clients who has uh, bought all the materials to make their own. <laughs> rub, yeah. I, well, I mean, I guess I'm sorry. I do have to. I'm talking about in your personal yeah. life at your center to make sure that you're, you're keeping up to stock because yeah. there might be shortages in the future. Yes. I know, uh, actually, I thought it was interesting. The governor did a press conference yesterday in New York State, and they're actually going to start having the prisoners start producing alcohol hand rub to make available to all New Yorkers right. with prioritizations to governmental entities that need it the most. Like I, I think one of the big places they're going to make sure that has it is the MTA. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. <laughs> um, so I thought that was an interesting, mm -hmm. yeah. an interesting idea. So, I mean, who knows what it'll mean for our centers, if that's going to be available to us or if it's going to mostly go to the hospitals or if it's even something that we want to use. I don't know. It'll, <laughs> you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Yeah. Um, but I think they said they're going to, work to be able to produce 100,000 gallons of uh, alcohol hand rub per week. Oh, so, wow. <laughs> uh, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens there and uh, don't go out and buy up the whole shelf of uh, alcohol hand rub. <laughs> or don't panic when there isn't any, I guess. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, and, and the CDC during one of their press conferences pointed out that don't forget washing your hands with soap and water for the appropriate period of time, which mm -hmm. I believe is – to the what song do you have to sing? You have to sing Happy, Happy birthday, birthday Twice. Twice, and that's the appropriate amount of time. Yeah. But that's as effective, actually, probably actually more effective. more effective. Right, yeah. than using the hand. The rub. problem is when you're out and around. Like it's not as easy. Yeah. Us driving around and in and out of the city, and I'm always squirting some hand sanitizer on your hands. <laughs> My hands are raw now. <laughs> <laughs> and, of course, I got a paper cut, so that made it even worse the other day. <laughs> um, so I think, I think the, the key things for centers to remember is look at your policies. Right. Make sure that you probably already have done this, but make sure you have a supply of appropriate PPE. 
Make sure your employees know how to use a PPE appropriately. Right. This is a good time to do an in-service on, yeah. on PPE. I know the CDC has some good um, resources out there with, you know, YouTube videos and stuff that you can watch. And I we will also link to the appropriate PPE to use per the CDC recommendations. It does say an N95 mask, which m- most of our centers do not have. Mm-hmm. So use a surgical mask. Um, and then just limit your exposure. Jenna, I want to go back to the issue of the policies because uh, you have developed the policy. I know you're revising and I don't know if we'll be able to get it up uh, in time for this episode. But we need to talk about the difference between a policy and a protocol here. Now, this is a very – let's just talk about the general thing. A policy is something that you establish in your organization, approved by the governing body, and it's usually something that stays there for a long period of time. A protocol is something that might have to change. So to that end, can you talk a little bit about what we are doing uh, for our clients in uh, developing or revising our current policies and then uh, supplementing with protocols? Yeah, so we've been working on updating – a policy that I had written previously called Emerging Infectious Disease, which we made to meet our requirements of our HVA, actually. Right. But we didn't have real-life examples, really, to go off of. So this experience, we've revised it, I think, twice. I'm in the process of revising it for a second time um, because the more this disease spreads, the more we're learning and the more questions that we're getting from clients. And we're like, let's put that in the policy that right. so that people know what to do. However, we are trying to make it generic because you don't want to have to write a new policy every time COVID-19 or MERS or SARS or Ebola right. or whatever the next one to come out, you know, the bird flu, who knows what it's going to be next. Yeah. You know, if you can have something generic, but it gives you good guidance and Honestly, most of mine is referring to CDC guidelines, local health department, state health department guidance. And then you're going to have your protocols that are going to change, like I said, probably daily because the disease changes, you know, the guidance changes daily. And those are the protocols you're going to put in place that aren't going to go through, you know, aren't going to go into your policy manual because they're going to, cha- you don't, you don't want to change your policy manual every day. Right. So, you know, your protocols on, you might change the way you screen once or twice a week. So uh, we are uh, running, uh, we're about 38 minutes now into uh, this section here, and uh, we still do want to have an end section where we talk about New York State issues. We apologize uh, to our non-New York State listeners. We will try to get uh, information from other states, um, but uh, we'll put that in the third section so you don't have to, uh, if you're not from New York, you don't have to stick around if you don't want to. But I did want to, let's just finish this by kind of just going through a bullet list of all the things that we want you to do uh, in the next 24 hours. Okay. So action and plans. I'm actually going to go off of, and we'll again post this on the website. The CDC put out steps for healthcare facilities to take to prepare for Perfect. coronavirus 2019. So first, stay informed. So make sure that you bookmark your CDC website, your local health department website, and your New York State. And some of them even have things you can sign up for to get alerts. Right. Review your emergency plan, or if you do not have a plan yet. Um, time to put it together. Time to put one together. <laughs> Definitely involve your infection preventionist. Right. Then this one's establish relationships with key healthcare and public health partners in your community. And know who they are. And know who they are. So good example of this is the New York State Association. There's been a mass email going back and forth between members today talking about, you know, their issues with getting PPE, with right. getting 
alcohol-based hand rub and sharing ideas and sharing what they're doing at their centers. So, you know, reach out to other people you know in the ASC community around you if you need help um, or if you're having trouble getting PPE, you know, someone else might have a different vendor that's able to get it. And then reaching out if you need it to your local health department. I mean, I wouldn't do it unless you need to because they're getting yeah, right. overwhelmed with calls but if you have a, if you have a concern or a question with uh, of someone who might have the disease definitely reach out to them um and then this is a good time to remember to update your emergency contact list make sure that you have contact for those key people and make sure you know the phone number to call your local health department so the next is to communicate with your staff and your patients so communicate with your staff make sure that they all know like we said do not come in uh, work sick. And then also make sure that you are aware of any international travel with your patients. Make sure that you're posting those signs or at least asking them during pre-op phone call and at admission about. That's actually an important point is that as much as possible, try to stop this before they even get into the center. Agreed. Yeah. And then so what I'm recommending for the pre-op phone call is are you having any symptoms such as fever, cough or shortness of breath? Um, have you or anyone in your household traveled internationally or on a cruise ship in the past two weeks? If yes, where? And then make sure that your front desk people know those locations that are under travel notices. And lastly, have you had close contact with a suspect or a laboratory confirmed COVID-19 patient? And again, you're going to have to make decisions based on those answers as to who is going to be rescheduled, who are you going to allow, and that's that's going to be a, a, a leadership decision for some things. You know, for some people, definitely they need to stay home. And then lastly is making sure that you're protecting your staff. So, again, emphasizing the screening, making sure that you have proper PPE, making sure that you have enough PPE if you do have a case of the COVID-19. And then also making sure that your staff are aware of your policy, as we talked about with doing a drill. As we've been uh, recording this episode, I've been getting emails from HHC and the Joint Commission. We are trying to get them on uh, for an interview. Uh, they are so overwhelmed right now that I don't know that we can make this work, but we will try to at least get a press release from them or some information that we can pass on to you as it comes in. I did want to also point out that one of the things that has come up both by the, with CMS and with HHC in particular, I'm sure Joint Commission is the same way, is that the, any surveys that are going to occur are going to be heavily focused on two areas, mainly infection control, but also disaster preparedness. So if your infection control plan or your disaster preparedness plan does not include all of the appropriate elements, and to that, at that point, Alex, you know, making sure your disaster plan at least addresses the issue of a pandemic or um, at, you Emerging know, infectious of, disease is the right. term. Yeah. So uh, please make sure it, it is. And now it's a little bit beyond our scope to be able to just give you an emergency plan certainly here. But if uh, if you feel that your plan needs to be revised, certainly reach out to us. Uh, we'd be glad to help you in that process. If your infection control plan hasn't been updated, literally updated this last year even, uh, you it is time to revisit that. And, and we do have experts that are available to uh, assist you in that process. But definitely look at it make sure it's addressing these issues and be prepared for a very difficult conversation with the surveyors about your preparedness, both for infection control and for emergency preparedness. I think even if you don't have a history of infection control issues, but you're you're having a survey, 
that's where they're going to be focusing right now because it's fresh in their minds. Well, and, and it's actually being, they're being told, surveyors, myself included, are being told, you need to focus on infection control since that is the, the hot topic. And uh, and they have stated that any issues there could uh, rise much faster to an, uh, an immediate jeopardy situation if you're not careful. So uh, this is now uh, to the point where if your infection control program has any weaknesses, you, you're much more likely now than you know in the past to have an uh, immediate jeopardy situation. Immediate jeopardy situation is where uh, you're being told basically to either shut down or that unless you can come up with a mitigation plan uh, before the surveyors leave that uh, you're not able to open the next day. Okay, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back and talk about New York State. Uh, I do apologize for the other states. We're just prepared for New York at this point. We will try to do a little bit of research on the others. We will be providing links and we have already done that for other states too. So let's take a, a short break and we'll talk about New York State issues. And uh, we'll give you um, a list of the upcoming events, and we'll also talk about what's been canceled and what is still going on. So we are back, and uh, we now want to talk uh, for our New York State listeners uh, first with uh, the activities going on in New York. Jenna, do you want to kind of give an update as of uh, yesterday? So as of yesterday, the state released new recommendations for testing for COVID-19 and the criteria in which providers are authorized to test. So first is an individual that's come within proximate contact, same classroom, office, gathering, etc., of another person known to be positive. Next is an individual that's traveled to a country that the CDC has issued a level two or a level three travel notice and has symptoms of the illness. Third is an individual who is quarantined, either mandatory or precautionary, and has shown symptoms of the illness. Fourth is a person who's symptomatic and has not tested positive for any other infection. So you've already done a flu, you've already done a strep, you can't figure out what this person has. Time that, to test for that might COVID. be okay. someone that you want to test, um, even if they don't have a known exposure. You know, at this point, it might have been a community exposure. Right. And then, lastly, other cases where the facts and circumstances warrant as determined by the treating clinician, and in consultation with the local health department. So again, those are all of the situations in which uh, testing would be authorized. Mm-hmm. And those are the ones that. If someone reports they fit into one of those categories, either during your pre-op phone call right. or on admission, if it's during the pre-op phone call, you're going to refer them to their primary care doctor to get tested. Right. <laughs> or if it's when they get to your center, that's when you're going to be calling the local health department. Got it. And then the other thing as of yesterday they had put out was their protocols regarding mandatory and precautionary protocols. For quarantine. Yeah, yeah. A mandatory quarantine is one that can be directed by legal order if not complied with. So uh, currently required mandatory quarantine are people who have been in close contact with someone who is positive but is not displaying symptoms or a person who's traveled to China, Japan, Iran, South Korea, or Italy and is displaying symptoms. Next are people who are required mandatory isolation. Um, This is a person who has tested positive for COVID, whether or not they're displaying symptoms. And last is the required precautionary quarantine, and that's people who have either traveled to um, 
one of those countries listed while it was prevalent but is not displaying symptoms, or someone who has had a proximate exposure to a positive person but not had direct contact with a positive person and is not displaying symptoms. Um, so that, again, is probably subject to change, but that as of March 9th is what. And then based on those different categories, there's different levels of monitoring of those people that the local health departments are doing. I think we should also point out that don't forget the flu right now is uh, very aggressive this year and uh, is extremely prevalent. So, again, all of those uh, regular precautionary measures you take just for the regular flu need to be uh, done also. Yeah, this is a good time to also reinforce good hand hygiene, good respiratory etiquette, um, covering your cough. I know CDC and some of the local health departments have nice signs to post up, also reminding people how to do proper hand hygiene. And, uh, you know, making sure that you have hand sanitizer available in your waiting room. And then I know masks you don't necessarily want to put out because you don't want... People are taking taking massive quantities, yes. But have them available at your reception desk that if someone needs one, your receptionist can give it to them. So if they have... If one of your visitors has a cough, that might be someone that you want to just put a little mask on. Okay. And uh, we'll post uh, information about all of these items on the uh, website. And uh, please pass this information on to anybody else that you feel uh, might be interested in it. Pass uh, a link to the website if you uh, wouldn't mind. And then, you know, obviously we're going to have another podcast probably in another couple of days. So let's uh, finish with just a kind of a summary of the upcoming events that we have. Uh, please remember, if you would like your event to be included in the podcast, please uh, send the event information to info at ASCPodcast.com. Please keep us informed. We'd be glad to pass the word on both through our LinkedIn page uh, and here on the, the podcast about uh, anything that's uh, uh, been canceled. Let's start with HHC Achieving Accreditation. Uh, this is an interactive, in-depth, two-day seminar designed to help organizations prepare for the HHC survey. Uh, it is March 13th and 14th in Miami. If you are considering a change uh, from IMQ to HHC, this is a great opportunity to do this. I'm sure that there's going to be a lot of great information there about how to prepare uh, your organization for the infection control section. Again, uh, we have not heard any word that this has been canceled, so uh, it is still going on. This year's National Advocacy Day is taking place in Washington, D.C. on March 24th and 25th. Participation in ASCA's National Advocacy Day is the best way to build relationships with your members of Congress, advocate for your ASC and the ASC community, and network with other ASC leaders. The Florida Society of ASC's Quality and Risk Management Conference is April 16th and 17th, 2020 in Buena Vista, Florida. The Iowa Association of ASC's 12th Annual Education Conference is April 17th and 18th, 2020 in Johnston, Iowa. ASCA 2020, we have just received confirmation that it is still on, is in Orlando, Florida, May 13th through the 16th. It is the ASC industry's most highly regarded and well-attended event. Attendees include physicians, administrators, nurses, managers, and owners of the ASCs from across the country and throughout the world. At the annual conference, you will find more than 50 educational sessions designed for ASC professionals at every level, nationally recognized ASC management experts, networking opportunities with more than a 1,000 of your colleagues, hundreds of exhibitors who can help you find the solutions your ASC is looking for, and, of course, the latest regulatory and accreditation updates. Make sure you sign up to attend, and we'll, of course, be there, assuming that it continues. And uh, as I said, there is no indication at this point that it is being canceled. Becker's 18th Annual Future of the Spine and the Spine Orthopedic and Pain Management-Driven ASC Conference is June 18th through the 20th, 2020 at the Swiss Hotel Chicago in Chicago, Illinois. 
The Florida Society of ASC's annual conference and trade show is July 15th through the 17th at the Walt Disney World in Orlando, Florida. The Ohio State Association Conference will be September 30th through October 1st, 2020 at the Hilton Columbus Polaris in Columbus, Ohio. And as we mentioned earlier, if you're planning on attending any of these, just keep your eyes open to make sure that they're still going on. But as far as we know, all of these are. And we will update on the website if uh, any changes occur. Uh, We'll be back with you uh, within the week with another episode, uh, continuing on with our conversation here. We will be talking about a number of things, uh, including uh, reevaluating your uh, infection control plan, uh, making sure your infection control coordinator is up to date, discussing the future ramifications from an economic standpoint, what we might be seeing even once this uh, episode is over, we're going to have some far-reaching issues with regard to the supply chain. That's it for this episode of the ASC Podcast with John Gailey. Join us again, and please consider becoming a patron by going to our website at ASCPodcast.com and spread the word about our podcast with your friends, colleagues, and and do us the honor of hitting the subscribe button. The sound editor for this episode is Susan Cronkite. Executive producer is John Gailey. Research assistance is provided by Susan Cronkite, Jenna Alvarez, Judy D'Ambrosio, Alex Borneman, and Lori Rodericks. Music is provided by Media Sushi and... Mike Noah. The ASC Podcast with John Gailey is hosted on Podbean and is available in all major podcast channels. This podcast is an educational and operational tool and is not intended to be a comprehensive resource for all the rules, regulations, and standards that an ambulatory surgery center must meet. The advice provided should not be considered as, nor does it constitute legal advice or opinion. When reviewing specific situations involving legal and regulatory issues, attorneys and other professionals should be consulted. This has been a production of Eden Group Development, All Rights Reserved. We would like to thank this week's sponsors. First, Ambulatory Healthcare Strategies, one of the nation's leading regulatory compliance and financial oversight firms. For a free consultation, contact John Gailey today at 585 594-1167 or through email at info at ah-strategies.com and Eden Group Development which publishes ASC Regulatory Compliance Series, the ASC industry's leading books including the Survey Guide for ASCs, a guide to the CMS conditions for coverage and interpretive guidelines for ambulatory surgery centers, and Ambulatory Surgery Center Governance, a guide for ambulatory surgery center owners and governing body members. These must-have books are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble or directly from the publisher at reg-books.com. That's R-E-G-B-O-O-K-S.com. If you are interested in advertising or sponsoring the ASC Podcast with John Gailey, please email us at info at ASCPodcast.com. We would love to hear your questions and comments. Please email us at comments at ASCPodcast.com.